we're going to take a look at Ezekiel. And the reason why we're going to look at Ezekiel, uh, yesterday, um, a man by the name of Eli Wessel died. Uh, he was 87 years old. He was a Holocaust survivor. He wrote a book called Night, and uh, he was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Ellie Wessel, 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 yeah. And uh, he, he made a comment about the book of Ezekiel, and I was blessed by it. He said, no generation could understand Ezekiel as well as or as profoundly as our generation. Ezekiel has spoken clearer to our generation than any generation before. And I was thinking about this being the 240th birthday of our nation and uh, kind of contemplating, just looking at all the things. And I wanted to encourage you today um, because it seems like there's not a lot to be encouraged by. And the Lord had put it on my heart to encourage you through the book of Ezekiel. And it'll be an interesting encouragement, uh, probably not one that you were banking on, but it will but it'll be encouraging nevertheless, and I, I just pray God's blessing upon you. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ezekiel 1. If you don't, these folks will give you one. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. Ezekiel chapter 1. Were there any announcements? I didn't see anything up here. No? No announcements? Okay. Uh, I, w- I had the privilege of uh, being in uh, Jamaica last week at a wedding, uh, suffering for Jesus. And, uh, but I, I got to tell you, it's good to be home. And um, tomorrow, or ten, after, after service, we're leaving for Coronado, where my family is, and there's a 4th of July celebration there, so I'm heading over there. Okay, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're not going through the entire book. It's 48 chapters. I'm just going to do the... Introduction, and we'll continue in our study of the book of Judges next week. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Boozy, his dad was a drinker. In the land of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, by the river Chabar. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. That's what we're going to cover. Let's pray. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the study of your word. I pray encouragement upon your people. Lord, as you encouraged Ezekiel thousands of years ago, and as Eli pointed out in regards to the book of Ezekiel, It pertains to our generation. And so, Lord, today, by the power of your living word, would you cause us to come alive as you did for Ezekiel? And I pray, Lord, that you administered every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 240 years ago, uh, five men got together. They were the committee of five, John Adams, Roger Sherman, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Livingston, and Thomas Jefferson, to put together a declaration of independence. They were pulling away from England, and they were declaring themselves to be a free and independent nation. And in doing that, they drafted it on June 11th. Uh, It was approved and and, uh, ratified on July 4th, 1776. Now, the signing of the Declaration of Independence didn't occur until, I believe, August 2nd. And um, yet the entire nation was unified around what we call our birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence. I want to read a portion of it to you, and then we're going to go into the study. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to that separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles 
and organizing its powers in such form as to themselves seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their form former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let the facts be submitted to a candid world. And the authors go on to list a number of of issues and concerns. At the conclusion of the Declaration of Independence, these are the words. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That is your birth certificate as a citizen of the United States of America. That's 240 years old. As a nation in the span of history, it's not all that old of a country. However, in the span of history, it's the most successful country in the history of the world. It has accomplished more and accumulated more assets than any other nation in the history of, of the world. All because of this idea that these are inalienable rights endowed by our Creator, given to us. And a government is instituted among men for the preservation and protection of those rights. When a government seeks to stop that, it is the duty of the people to throw off such a government. And here we're watching as these rights are eroding, and we're watching unprecedented exponentially, especially in the last five years, an unbelievable usurpation of these inalienable rights by a government that seems to be completely out of control. And as a nation and as a people, we're struggling and we're suffering. We're now $19 trillion in debt. California alone is $1.5 trillion in debt. We're watching as the taxation and the debt upon, uh, just looking at Paige alone, she, she's incurred close to $80,000 of debt. She hasn't even done anything. She's, she didn't even get a doctorate for that. This is unconscionable. We're killing our children. Red ink as far as the eye can see. And we're, we're walking into a political season where we're watching two candidates, one that had a three-and-a-half-hour investigative conversation with the FBI and another that is demeaning and derogatory and caustic at best. And we're wondering what happened to the nation we grew up in. I'm 51. I remember Reagan. He was the first president I voted for. I was 18 years old. I I know what it was like to go to show and tell and bring my pocket knife. To walk on an airplane without having to go through a scanner. Over close to 50 people dead in Orlando. Another horrible incident in Istanbul. We're watching our nation at war with an enemy we don't even want to define or, or declare. And yet, we're struggling. 
We're struggling as a people. We're struggling as a country. We're struggling for identity. And I think of greatest travesty, of greatest importance, is the fact that as a nation, we've put God aside. It's not that we've forgotten him. We just aren't concerned with him. He's not important to us. He's a, he's a portion of our life, but not the entirety. We're not moved by him. To try to find an honest man or an honest woman, if any of you are employers, you understand how difficult it is now to find someone you can trust, someone who keeps their word, someone who doesn't cheat, doesn't lie, doesn't steal. We're watching as the X, Y generation, millennials are the first generation to be raised with situational ethics and, and evolution and the reality that there is no God, at least from the school's perspective. And as we remove absolutes from our culture and any vestige of the scriptures, we're watching a culture implode. We have nothing to govern us. We, we have no rudder. And we're struggling. We're desperate. But how desperate? I'm fascinated because on Wednesday night I taught out of the book of Ezekiel and I was touched by it. It's 48 chapters long, but the amazing thing about Ezekiel, he's one of three exiled prophets. He's not just a prophet, he's a priest. He's actually the only priest prophet in exile. He's unique to the scriptures. You see, at the time of the writing of Ezekiel, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and Daniel was in Babylon, the capital. Now, Ezekiel was in Babylon, but not in the capital. He was in the territory of Babylon. He was in a a place called Tel Abib. And, And he resided there as a prophet and a priest. And Daniel was overseeing God's directive in the government. He was second in command of Babylon. Daniel had risen in the political sphere, and he was still a prophet, but he was also a politician, interestingly enough. Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem to declare repentance to the people, and the people, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He had no converts, and he preached, and he preached, and no one converted. They were a stiff-necked people, and they listened to the false prophets that could never envision Jerusalem falling. The Assyrians, 187,000 Assyrians were wiped out by one angel. And most of the Jews had thought never in their lifetime would they see Jerusalem fall. There was no, no possibility. And Daniel, who was in captivity, he was taken as a young child with Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. They were taken into captivity as children in the first exile. Daniel had probably watched his parents murdered before his eyes. He'd been castrated and turned into a eunuch to serve the king of Babylon. And even with all of that misery that had been perpetrated upon him, he still honored God and still served the Lord. He worshiped God. And as he worshiped the Lord, he rose in authority and he rose in significance. He rose in influence. Ezekiel considered him to be a hero. Ezekiel would comment on him in the 48 chapters at least three times. And not only did Ezekiel comment on Daniel, he also commented on Noah And having commented on Noah, he also commented on Job. But interestingly enough, though they were contemporaries, Ezekiel never commented on Jeremiah. Jeremiah was older than Ezekiel. Jeremiah was approaching 40 years of age when Josiah was the king of Israel, and everyone thought this was going to be the second David. It was almost like those of you who remember Reagan, America was great again, and we were watching that. And we haven't seen anything like that in our lifetime since. And yet they thought in Josiah this was going to be the second David. And, and at 14 years of age, Ezekiel had witnessed the tail end of Josiah's reign. And then following that, the nation implodes. And you have the northern and the southern kingdoms. And God is, is calling judgment upon both. Jeremiah, again, remains. And as we are going to see in Jeremiah, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, he's going to speak to the people because there will be a second exile. 10,000 of them would go, as we read in Second Kings 24, 10,000, and they would take all of the educated. They would take the priests and, and all the scholars. They would take the wealthy. They would exile them into Babylon, and only the poor would remain in Jerusalem. It's similar to what happened in Cambodia with the Pol Pot regime when they wiped out all the educated and all that remains in Cambodia now are the uneducated. 
And there's any, any, you don't see anyone over 60 in Cambodia. They've all been wiped out. You see skulls, but you don't see living beings. And this is what the Babylonians did to the Jews. In the second exile, they had taken 10,000. In that second exile, Ezekiel was taken. And as he was taken, he was brought to this town of Tel Abib. And he lived by the river Chebar. It was probably more of a canal. And he struggled. He struggled deeply as a prophet. God would say to to Ezekiel, you know, people aren't going to hear you. They're going to see you. And what they don't glean with their ears, they'll they'll gain with their eyes. And so he would use Ezekiel as an example. He would tell him, "I, I want you to sleep on one side for 380 days. And that's to declare judgment on the northern kingdoms. And then I want you to switch and sleep on the other side for 380 days to declare judgment on, on Judea, Jerusalem. And then, and then God would say, walk around with a, a, a metal pan in front of your face. He would have a, a number of things that he would tell Ezekiel to do. And Ezekiel was obedient. And the people were stiff-necked. They were goyims. They were, they, they, they were pagans. And God was struggling with their disobedience. And it's amazing. It's amazing. You can be raised with the word of God. You can be in church every Sunday, and you are stiff-necked. You've read all the books. You've read all the scriptures. You've gone through all the counseling, but you don't change. You're stiff, stiff-necked. What is it going to take for the nation to return to God? What's it going to take for God's people to return to him? And it's fascinating what occurred in Ezekiel's life because Ezekiel, we would find later in the chapter, his wife dies. God says, I'm going to take her. And by the morning, she was dead. He said, you're not allowed to mourn. You're not allowed to weep. And he would awaken and she'd be dead. How does a man endure that? How does a man endure being used of God to sleep on one side for 380 days and sleep on the other side for 300 days, walk around with a metal pan in front of his face, watch his wife die and not be permitted to cry? Who is this man? What gave him such a a purpose that he would stand firm? And though I read the opening portion, the first three verses of Ezekiel, it says the hand of the Lord was upon him there, and it also says that the heavens were opened and I saw a vision or visions of God. In the remainder of chapter 1, this vision is, is in, in depth, and it's, it's what many call the Patmos of the Old Testament. Patmos is the island on which... Uh, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And again, it was judgment on the church. And it was this idea of a letter that would be sent to the seven churches. And this was a postal route. And God was declaring judgment on the church and saying, you've left your first love. And he'd go through each of the different churches and he'd point these things out. We look at the church today. We want to talk about impotent. I mean, I'm thinking of Houston itself. And and Houston, some of the largest churches, and I was listening, uh, reading a, a commentary um, David Lane had refreshed my memory on a commentary where you have the faith of a mustard seed and it grows into this, this tree and then the birds nest in this tree. Uh, a mustard seed, a plant was never to grow more than six feet at, at the most. And it was abnormal growth that it would be so big, evil would rest in its branches. And you go through Houston as I was there on my way to Jamaica. We stayed uh, the night in Houston and drove by uh, one of the largest churches in the country. Massive church. It's in, it's in the old basketball arena. It's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. And there, uh, the largest conglomeration of mega churches in the country uh, representing billions of dollars in real estate. It was said of this large church that their offering, the cash offering, was stolen, which was the equivalent of $3 million, let alone what came in electronically in the funding. This church is massive. And yet in this church or I should say in Houston, where this, this conglomeration of megachurches exists, they have a lesbian mayor who is declaring to the pastors that, that they must be subpoenaed for, for their sermons. These inalienable rights and, and this idea of, the, of, of our U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment being the freedom of religion and the freedom of the press and the freedom to peaceably assemble, the freedom of speech, as a redress of grievances towards the government. The pulpit is to be the place to protect the people from representatives that would seek to take their inalienable rights, but the pulpits are silent. Why do you think our representatives, our founders, gave us the First Amendment? Somehow we've forgotten this. 
And in the silence of these mega churches, the, the, the city is imploding. Imploding. Did God intend this mega concept? Did God intend that the church would be a financial windfall, that this would be the place where, where you could turn the church into a business? Is this what he intended? A church that is so massive and, and people gather, but yet to have any ability to transform government and to stand for 240 years of freedom and to protect those inalienable rights, the church is impotent. We've lost that power. What's missing? What did Ezekiel have that he would stand firm in the midst of a nation that was imploding? What did he have to be able to endure the death of his wife? What did he possess that gave him such strength? It says so clearly, this man, yes, he was a messenger, but he was also at times the message itself. He arrived 11 years before the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. He prophesied from the age of 30 to the age of 52. We don't know what happened to him. Like most of the prophets in exile, he was just timeless. We only have extra biblical works that declare what possibly could have happened to him, but we don't know. But he prophesied for 22 years in Babylon. And as he prophesied, in 48 chapters that he would write in prophecy, he used the term Lord of all over 400 times. Ezekiel grasped the concept of the sovereignty of God. Over 400 times, he would say, Lord of all. What does Lord of all mean? There you go. There you go. Lord of all. Lord of government. Lord of the media. Lord of all. But we're all victims. Whining, pathetic victims. Lamenting the decline of our nation. And yet he's Lord of all. 400 times he would declare this and never lose resolve. His face would be set as a flint. His purpose would never be denied. Fascinatingly, he would declare Lord of all 400 times in 48 chapters. He understood the sovereignty of God. Where did he get this? He would actually conclude and I listed this, he would conclude the end of the book, and I want to read this to you, he would use a a comment, Jehovah Shema. It's the last words that he would use in the 48 chapters of Ezekiel. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shema, God is present. He's with us. What does that mean, he's with us? What does that mean? What comfort does that mean? Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. How does that bring peace to anyone? You see, for Ezekiel, it was fascinating that he would list a specific day. As he would live in Tel Aviv, he would pass by the, the, the canal, the river Chebar, every day. Similar to you driving by the mall on the 101. We'd pass by it every day. Uh, depending on where you're traveling, there, there's a landmark. We'd go by City Hall. Every day, it would just be in the course of a day, you'd drive by it, and that's what he would do going by the River Chebar. It, it, was, it was the industrial center. It was a trade route. Uh, this was center to the city, and he would go by it every day. Why this day was it different? What happened? It came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the River Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw a vision of God. That day. The heavens opened and he saw a vision of God. The vision itself, when I looked, behold, a whirlwind was coming, engulfing itself, and bright was all around us, and radiating out of the midst of the color of amber, and out of the midst of the fire, and all within likeness, four living creatures, and there was appearance and likeness of man. Like, 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 like he goes on for an entire chapter. It's like an LSD trip, but it's amazing. This picture of God, wheels with eyes all around it, and the sovereignty of God lifted up massive. You can't even uh, comprehend. And, and, I, and I, he was a man who took great, detail in writing down this vision, though as, as we read it, you, it, it, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. And I love the way the Apostle Paul would deal with vision when 
when he was left for dead and, and, and uh, he was taken up into the third heaven and he had a vision of heaven. And, and I love what Paul wrote. Paul wrote, uh, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. I am not even going to try. Basically, Paul was a pragmatic guy. He just said, uh, I could try to explain it, but it would seem like I'm on drugs. So I'm not going to do it. Ezekiel wrote it down, and it seems like he's on drugs. But it was a vision that floored Ezekiel. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish or dung that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul had already seen a vision of the Lord on the road to Damascus. He had seen heaven, as we saw in the previous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here he's saying, I want to see more of God. I want to see more of God. Moses, Moses had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. Moses had seen the burning bush. Moses had witnessed all of the plagues. Moses had witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet even there, Moses, who was, who was tasked with, with delivering the, the Hebrew slaves out of bondage in Egypt, as he was tasked with this, this overwhelming call to deliver folks from bondage into freedom, he said, In Exodus 33 to the Lord, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You see, what touched Ezekiel was he saw God. Let me me make it easier for you. You live in fantasy. I was invited to go to Studio City on the studio lot to watch a screening of a movie. And and as I went through, I I realized this entire location has enormous influence on the world, and it deals in fantasy. And we're moved by it to the point where it paralyzes us. It dictates, it guides. It, it, it shows us what we're supposed to do. It, it establishes our culture. And yet the entire place is built on fantasy. They're all backlots. It's not real. And here we are in the midst of an election cycle. Here we are in the midst of, of the 240th year of our nation. And we're in despair? Despair? You know why you're in Despair? Because you're seeing fantasy, not reality. You need a fresh vision of God. You see, the amazing thing about Isaiah and Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. Uzziah was the Reagan of the time. When he died, they thought the nation was finished. But not Isaiah. He saw a glimpse of the Lord. See, we go through the course of the day, and, and yes, we indulge in Bible study. And yes, we go through a theological dissertation. And we, we, we go through explanations. And we sit through church service. And, and we do our quads. And, and maybe we have our time of reading in the scriptures. And we do all these things. But then we go out into the world and we get bombarded by visions and images and, and statements and comments. And, and, it, and it, it drives us to a place of despair and discouragement. Because we, we have a, a, a theological explanation but we need, we need a picture of his presence. Do you realize who it is we've come to meet today? This isn't a game. He's the God of the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. None of this has caught him by surprise. He's not shocked. He's not going, how in the world did those two candidates get to where they are? 
What am I going to do? Have you seen this debt? No. No, no, he's, he's not biting his fingernails. He laughs. And he scorns the stupidity of man. We rise up and we're going to declare that he doesn't exist and we're, gonna, we're going to unify and we're going we're gonna to make it all happen and we're going to kick him out and we're going to tell him we don't need him anymore. Well, if he's God, why would you kick him out? He doesn't exist. Then why are you fighting him? Well, I, I, I don't understand the question. You see, on a typical day, as he's just going about his business, I love this. What was ordinary in his mind had been sacred all along. It was a normal day. He goes by the river Chabar. On the 13th year, oh, excuse me, the 30th year, he was 30 years old, the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. And I bet you when we get to heaven, we can ask him, we go, yeah, it was in the afternoon. He'll tell us it was morning or afternoon. He remembers it vividly. He says, I was among the captives in the river Chabar. I, I was in exile. Just like all of us. And the heavens were open. And I saw a vision of God. You know what we need? You know what revival is? A fresh vision of God. I'm, I'm, I'm in a place, I would love that. I, I study, I do what I'm supposed to do. I, I pour my heart into the text, I read, I, I, I step forward in faith, I do the things that I, I feel God's calling me to do. I, I, I do my best. But I have to tell you something. There are days where I get discouraged because the fantasy overrides the reality and I would like a fresh vision of reality. I want to see God. I want to see him. I want him to visit his people. And you know when he visits his people? It's crazy. It's like judgment day. When he visits, it's overwhelming. And what's fascinating is it says that the hand of the Lord was upon me there at the river Chabar. He goes on to tell them what he's supposed to do, and they're going to be a stiff-necked goyim, a a pagan people, but I'm going to cause you to rise. I'm going to empower you. I want you to eat the scrolls. I want you to feed upon my word. I will give you a fresh vision of myself. And with that fresh vision and and, and, and that word dwelling richly in you, we will accomplish this, Ezekiel. And it's an encouragement that so speaks to us today that I believe the comment that Ezekiel speaks to our generation is so true. The reason why is because Ezekiel, he was an exile. He was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. It wasn't his home. And here's the part where we lose perspective. We think this is home. It's not. Heaven is home. We're just passing through. We keep our eyes on him, the author and finish of our faith. He doesn't lose. He's not in despair. He hasn't given up. He's not overwhelmed. He is sovereign. Sovereign, as Ezekiel would say so clearly, he is Lord of all. We fool ourselves into thinking that somehow evil is taking over. It doesn't, and it hasn't. He is Lord of all. He's waiting for his people to realize this. And they realize it when they see him. When you see him, you know. It's a fresh vision. It's a picture. We get heaven and earth confused. We get despaired because of what's happening on earth instead of keeping our mind in heaven. We get the two confused. But here at the river Chabar, the ordinary was turned into the sacred. What was ordinary in his mind had been sacred all along. Do you realize your morning devotions are sacred? Do you realize God's meeting with you? Do you realize his word is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword? The one that you seldom open or you seldom read, the one that you seldom apply, do you realize that that time is sacred? 
You realize when we gather in church, it's, it's not to come and listen to cool music and have the pastor entertain you. This is a sacred moment where God comes to meet with you. Have you prepared your heart to meet with him? Were you up late last night? Is it hard to pay attention to me? Are you exhausted? Are you worrying about your finances? Do you have a thousand things on your mind? Do you have a long journey ahead of you? I have to drive to San Diego. That's what I'm thinking about right now. Or have you prepared to come to meet with him? This is a sacred moment. This will be whatever you want it to be in relation to getting out of it what you seek. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. And here, Ezekiel is saying, God, I'm a priest, and I'm a prophet, and I'm tired. And I have to confess to you, God, and I was doing this this week. God, I have to confess to you. These circumstances don't seem consistent with your word. I'm discouraged. I... I want people to come to Christ. I, I want people to vote in godly representation. I, 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 I love, I, I love this declaration of independence. I love this nation. I love the founding of it and the mindset of it, the, the inalienable rights and, and, and divine, a, a divine being, God. I love this idea of, of, of nature's law, nature's God. I love that. I love the First Amendment. I, I just, I, it's fascinating. A bicameral legislature, brilliant. I love this. Why are people so apathetic? God, I've been asking you, I've, I've, been, I've been pleading with you, and your word, it just doesn't seem consistent with the circumstances. Nobody's awake. It's just, it's just being eroded, and they're just, they're, they're just lambs silent to the slaughter. They don't even know. They, they couldn't name five of the founders. They don't know. They're not being taught. In, in my lifetime, I would have never have imagined a candidate who would be considered feasible, who was a socialist. Where do you come up with this? Government can't pay for it. You're the government. We the people. And if you're going to give somebody something for not doing anything, why would anyone do anything anyways? Productivity will drop. The fifth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela, they're begging for food. They're digging in the dirt. Socialism. Are you stupid? Really? Where, where in the history of the world has that ever worked? Where? And yet, hook, line, and the people who know better, people who know better aren't moved to make a difference. Nobody shows up. And I'm just saying, God, I feel like Ezekiel, Lord, honestly, the circumstances don't seem consistent with your word. And God just gave me a fresh perspective got your eyes on the wrong things, Rob. Look to me. High and lifted up. I'm sovereign. I got this. You be faithful. You do what I tell you to do. I'll take care of the rest. That's not your problem. That's mine. Your job is to be obedient to whatever I tell you to do. I'll take care of the rest. Get your eyes off the illusion and put it on the reality of me. This is the part that blessed me, and I'm limited in time. But as I looked at the book of Ezekiel, he had three heroes. Jeremiah wasn't one of them. Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem. And I think Ezekiel was a little embittered by that because he had been taken from his home in the second exile, second diaspora or deportation. And, and he looked at Jeremiah and he thought, he gets to stay his heroes, interestingly enough, were Noah, Job, and Daniel. And as you think about that, it makes sense. I feel like I am in, ex in, in exile in my own country, in my own state. I've said this to you countless times. Everything I know the scripture says 
the nation doesn't embrace. Everything I know the scripture says the state doesn't embrace. Every candidate who stands for the things that, that the Lord stands for doesn't get elected. We're watching the mindset disappear of individual responsibility before the Lord and, and this idea of, of honoring God and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and, and being industrious and being honest and, and raising people with a fear of the Lord for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Up until the 1930s, the, the, the textbook in every school was a New England primer. It dealt with character. Today, we have no character. The state is raising our children. And I look and I think, God, I'm in exile. And now I get it. I see why he really, really appreciated Noah and Job and Daniel. All three of those men had lost their world. They'd lost their homes. Noah got to keep his wife and his, his sons, but everything was destroyed. Everything he'd ever known. Everything. And yet what happened when the ark landed? He built an altar to the Lord and worshipped him, didn't he? Job. He lost everything. All of his children died. His business was wiped out. His home was destroyed. Everything. The only thing he got to keep was a wife he didn't want. Well, he probably wanted her, but anyone who's read the book doesn't want her. It's like, he took all this? Couldn't you have taken her? (laughs) Apparently you haven't read the book. (laughs) And what, after having lost all of it, what did he say? Yea, though he slay me, yet will I worship him. Can you say that? Daniel. Daniel. Special. Taken when he was a teenager from his home, watched his parents murdered before his eyes. His home burned. Taken hundreds of miles away to the city of Babylon. Castrated. Never to have children. Put in the service of a king. And what did he do? He faithfully served the Lord and worshiped him. Ezekiel took strength from these men. He realized that these were the ones who understood reality from fantasy. You see, it's easy for us to be discouraged because we lose perspective and we need a fresh vision of the Lord. I told you earlier on in Ezekiel 24, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke, yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. He said, I'm going to take the desire of your eyes. I'm going to take the desire of your eyes. The Lord says, sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening, my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. How can a man lose his wife and still praise the Lord? How can a man lose his wife and not mourn in the presence of others? It's because he had a heavenly perspective. I love, I went to Tulane University 
And and uh, New Orleans, they do a funeral service where they're mourning, and then they get to a certain location. I forget where it is. And then they begin to dance, and the music changes to upbeat. And they have a mindset that they're in heaven, and they're celebrating, and it's a party. What would devastate you to the point of taking you out of the game? I can't fathom losing Michelle. I can't. But yet here in chapter 24, Ezekiel loses his wife. He said, I spoke to the people in the evening, and my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. I didn't weep in the presence of them. How does a man do that? He does it because he has his mind on the Lord. He realized that this is temporary. It's not eternal. I think for all of us, especially in this season, for those of you who are discouraged, I was listening to a brother tell me the other day how discouraged he was by voting activity. God's not shocked by that. He wants us to be passionate, but not to the point where it takes us into a place of anger. He wants us to be on our knees before him, crying out to him, God, give me a fresh vision that I wouldn't despair. Give me a fresh vision that I would be encouraged and emboldened. God, let me see what you see. Let me see you. And this is what God would do. I'm going to conclude by looking at it this way. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a truer heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. I wrote this at the bottom. When the fantasy is swallowed up by the reality of God, when that becomes real, your heart can be broken, but not your resolve. Even the death of a loved one will not hinder your resolve. You see, the author of Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. Folks, we're not victims. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. A fresh vision of the Lord, even if you've lost your home, or your wife. God is sovereign, and he reigns supreme, and he will accomplish that which he set out to do. And all he wants from us is obedience. And the way to hold fast to that obedience is to get a picture of the reality, to drown out the fantasy. This week, Would you say, God, would you show me yourself? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you bless me in a way that I've never been blessed before? I'm fearful of that prayer. But I started it two days ago. Because I don't want to be discouraged. I want to see the Lord high and lifted up. I want to see his majesty and his sovereignty. I want to be strengthened by the call upon my life to realize I'm in the service of the king who rules and reigns over all. This morning we take communion. And the call to that communion is you want to see a fresh vision of the Lord? There's no fresher vision than communion. In the mundane you will see the sacred. Brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest of holies, you are going into the presence of God. 
You're coming into the presence of God because of his blood that was shed for the remission of your sins. You step right into the presence of the Lord. You have access to the Father through the Son. His body broken, his blood shed. You were consecrated. The, the veil has been torn. We have a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. All right, just confess and come forward. God is waiting for you, and he's ready to reveal himself in a a new and profound way to encourage you in the coming days. None of this phases him, none of it. And I'll leave you with this as we take communion. When they pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, you realize every one of them thought they were going to lose all three. You realize what they put on the line? And you were sitting in a nation that has existed for 240 years because they stood firm in that resolve to do what was right before God Almighty. And do you know that those men and those women understood the sovereignty of God and stood upon that? They didn't waver. They pursued him and they pressed in in the midst of all the trial. We don't know tough. And today God says, you have free access to my presence. Come. Be refreshed. Be refreshed. Get a renewed vision of what God wants to do in and through you, not only for his kingdom, but for this nation. May God encourage you and bless you today. We've been given a great gift of a nation that recognizes God. I hope that that nation never passes from the face of the earth. But it's going to require the resolve of his people to stand firm to that. Come and find strength. Or walk away in apathy and discouragement. Good luck with that. Instead, come and find strength in your time of need and help. And watch what God does in and through you for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. And as you spoke to Ezekiel thousands of years ago, it's as timely today as it was when you shared those with him at the River Chabar. And God, as we begin to prepare to take communion, Lord, I think of the nation embroiled in a civil war where 650,000 people would die and 13 states would secede from the Union. And Lord, it was awful. But yet, even after that great awakening, when you revealed yourself to the men and women of this nation through the second great awakening, a million new converts in less than a year, a nation that would be able to endure a civil war and yet honor you. D.L. Moody, an ambulance driver. Lord, please, we need a fresh vision of you. Mine eyes have seen. And I pray, God, that you would just do that work today as we take communion in Jesus' name. Amen.